it's funny, people talk about networking all the time. And like, I think part of it is people talk about networking as like a chore. It's like, you know, it's like a transactional business activity. And if you define it as that, I don't think you get anything out of it. I mean, you might have a Rolodex and maybe a thousand more LinkedIn connections, but none of those people are going to answer your email. Hey, Sheree. Hey, Han. How's it going? I'm so excited that Kat Mendelson is joining us today on the pod. Um, I met Kat uh, for the first time actually through, I don't know if it's, well, it's work now, but when I was building Tastemakers, my lead investor um, on my seed round was Jesse Middleton at Flybridge, which is now where I work as head of community for those of you just tuning in. Jesse started dating this incredible woman called Kat Hernandez. And I knew very quickly, like, this is, he's going to marry this person. Like, I knew, I like, like, just the way. And when I met Kat, I just was like, she is a total badass. At the time, I think Kat was still at primary. So Kat was at, um, just from a professional background perspective, Kat was a partner at Primary Ventures. She's now a GP at the Venture Collective. She's an incredible early stage investor. And her background is actually in the, in the, in the people business. So she has been head of due diligence. She's been a VP of people. And I think that's like such an incredible and not often heard of journey into venture capital. And as you listen in and learn more from Kat, you'll see exactly why, like, this journey made her like especially qualified to be the kind of investor she is. And so I'm just excited for all of you to get to know Kat today as Han and I like have a chat with a person we both know and love. So yeah, Kat Middleton, welcome to the show. So Kat, tell us the moment when it just got real. Um, there's so many. How do you choose the one? But I think, um, Sheree, as you and I have discussed in the past, in this industry, there are so few people that look like you and me. And it's so easy to give up um, when things get really hard. And one of those moments for me was several years ago, while I was still at my former firm, just having a real crisis of self around, do I really belong here? In a midtown restaurant, sitting there with my best friend, who was one of my bridesmaids, who's also in, in venture, thinking to myself, like, man, how am I really going to make a change? And how do I do that in a way that doesn't have me losing myself along the way? And I mean, I kid you not, we went to the restroom and I was crying in a midtown steakhouse with her and with her reassuring me that everything was going to be okay. And there wasn't like anything substantial that had like led to that point. It was just like these series of small things that constantly, I think, have you questioning yourself for better or for worse. And for so many, like for so many of us, like it's easy to just be like, I'm going to go back and do the thing that's more comfortable. But in that moment, I'd never felt so weak. And we were in the middle of dinner, right? You know, we were there with our husbands. We were, everyone was having a great time. And I just like, couldn't, I couldn't shut that off so much so that we had to step away for a second. And thankfully you've got like a really understanding group of people. And so was able to move through that. But I think in this industry, every single day, I ask myself that question and like, do you want to fight the good fight? And how strong, how, how much do you want to fight it? Because it is like, it is a little bit like constantly going uphill mm. and co constantly going against the grain. Mm. And I'm not one to be overly emotional. Um, so that's like also the kind of a really hard thing for me to be crying in public um, mm. in front of what is mostly tourists people I will never, ever see again. <laughs> but it happens and it happens more often than I think I'd like to admit. Mm -hmm. um, I think maybe that's probably the most honest thing that I can say is that in this industry where 2% of dollars go to people that look like me from a funder perspective that then cascades down to founders, it is crazy hard. And it's even crazy hard um, thinking about it from the context of my husband being in the same industry and watching his journey and his journey being very different to mine. Yeah. Um, and he and I talk about that 
all the time. And he is an ally and a, you know, big supporter, but I think he'll never fully understand what it means for me to say, I am a general partner at an early stage fund and I belong here. What do you mean to make you cry? I also, I'm trying not to cry, so... (laughs) I am a crier. I am. It, it doesn't take much, but I think it's so funny, Kat, like just being super honest. Every time I see you, I feel that conversation, even though we don't talk about it. So I just want to honor that moment um, for you. And you are a person that always like presents as strength because you are, you are so strong. Like you can feel it if you're in a room with you. And so I know for you to like take that moment and get to the point where like you were feeling the feeling so much that you had to take that break. I know for how you move in the world, what that meant for you and to, and to have those again and again. And I just wanted to like honor you for doing what you needed to do and feeling what you needed to feel in that moment. Cause I think oftentimes you just like push it down, push it down, push it down, Mm -hmm. but also for still standing up and saying, I'm going to be here though. And I think the question that comes up for me is like, what is driving that for you? Like what, what in your journey is, creating the space for you to hold the tension of this industry, feel sometimes those feelings because it won't stop. And so, yeah, I'm curious about what in your journey, either present or past is like your fuel for working through those, those moments. Yeah. So it's, it's funny. I guess like I think about it in two ways. One is I come from a Filipino American family and in our culture, my job now as, you know, the primary breadwinner of the family is to take care of my parents who gave up so much to make sure that I could be here doing this exact work. I mean, I don't know that I, when I was a kid that I knew I would be a venture capitalist when I grew up. I think my parents preferred a doctor, but, um, (laughs) But there's so much of my, there's so much of my motivation that is um, very much about giving back to them and wanting to do so in a way that still allows me to live the life that I want to, but give them the opportunity to like kind of see the fruits of their labor, right? I mean, I earned everything that I have and um, I worked very hard to get here, but I would be remiss if I didn't say that it really was like the sacrifice of my parents moving to the Middle East. It was the fact that my mom stayed home and took care of three kids. It was the fact that I was able to go to the U.S. and get educated here. And like that led me eventually to New York City. Like none of those things would have happened if my parents had just decided as one of many kids in the Philippines to stay in the Philippines. I have plenty of extended family members that weren't as lucky as I So that's one component. The other side is like, it goes back to that feeling of like not belonging and feeling terrible inside is I don't want the next person to feel that way. I think tension is good. And I think things should not come easy for people because you do appreciate things once you get to a certain place. But there's something to be said for, can I make the path slightly less hard for the next person that looks like me? the next Mm -hmm. woman, the next person of color, the next immigrant, the next person that doesn't come with an Ivy League degree, the next, you know, the next, all of those things. And, and so it's funny is what I was at a dinner and someone asked me this question and I said, like, I want to make it easier, easy for people to get to this place. And then I was like, Mm -hmm. actually, I don't want it to be easy, but I do want it to be easier. Mm -hmm. I want us to maybe start at a somewhat even playing field when we're talking about these things. And that's just not true today. So the motivation, like on a personal level, is not wanting others to feel the way that I've felt in the past because it is a really crappy feeling to be in that place where you're constantly second guessing yourself and you're constantly feeling like everybody thinks that you don't belong, but you persevere anyway. Mm-hmm. And then the family thing is huge. Um, 
it is a really big and substantial part of my life. And I do everything that I can to give back to my family. Jesse knows this. That part is never going to go away from me. Like that's like number one. So what an incredible force you are. You know, I just wanted to plus one what Sheree said. Like, I've always seen you as such a strong person. And like anybody that you mention your name to in the founder and VC world is like, oh yeah, she's incredible. And like, I remember meeting you a couple of times and I was talking to you about my startup and it's like, it's so different than the moment, the real moment you described. And I also just want to hold space for like how much it takes to cry in public in New York City. (laughs) I remember a friend of mine made this funny little like uh, website once like this hack called like crying in New York City and people could like plot on a map where they'd like broken down in tears. (laughs) Shout out to Kate Ray for making that. Um, And I just thought it was the most like beautiful poignant thing because like as a former New Yorker, we know that like you ne- you don't let shit get to oh, you in New York yes. City, right? And so to get to that point where you're surrounded by tourists, uh, whether it be on a train or in a midtown restaurant or like a very public park, just like having an ugly cry is 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 real. Yeah, it definitely was ugly. So you can ask uh, Chris, <laughs> you can ask uh, my my best friend Chrissy. Oh, we've Foster. all been there. We've all so. been there. I did it on the L train. <laughs> <laughs> well, the L train is running. That's a good thing. So. <laughs> cry on. To cry on. <laughs> we're, we're kind of like in the journey of venture capital. And you kind of mentioned like your parents would have rather you be a doctor. I'm very curious about how you got to venture. Um, because I think venture capital is like the strangest industry ever. Like, to be honest, like even as a founder who'd raised being inside, I'm like, what is actually happening here? Like on a daily basis, I'm confused. So I I think it'd be really interesting to hear your journey. Like, where did you first think like maybe, and like, what were you doing? And feel free to like, talk, talk like fully about it. Cause I think our listeners, um, who are largely in our space, but also creative entrepreneurs, like it's a pretty diverse bunch. It'd be wonderful to just hear like what your journey to getting here. Yeah. It, it, so I've actually talked about this before um, through interviews with Allrays and, and other um, platforms. It, you know, I never wanted to be a venture capitalist. Um, I'm here now because I think this is the place where I can affect the most change. And it um, happens to lend nicely to the core of my operating experience, which was grounded on people. So as an early stage investor, like so much of, I mean, yes, you have to know things like, you know, is the product viable? Is the timing right? Is the market big enough? But like really as a pre-seed and seed stage investor, it's like, is this a human that I believe in? And like, do I think that the world will move that centimeter to give them like the ability to be successful? And how can I be helpful in that? And that's a people thing at its core. And so I happen to have figured out that like, this is the most viable path for me to make the biggest impact on the world. But it wasn't like a, there are plenty of people in this world and there are not that many jobs in venture who are like, I want to be a VC. That's it. That's what I want to be when I grow up. I'm coming out of business school. Like I'm, I'm going to do everything that I can. And that's a, that's amazing. If you have that clarity, I don't know that I had that clarity. So like, if I'm being honest, I kind of like stumbled into this through a series of, um, I guess like experiences that I think prepared me to be a great, well, we'll, we'll see from a returns perspective, um, because the feedback loop is so long. Um, but at least it prepared yes. me to be, I think the kind of human where founders want to be in front of and want to be pitching their ideas to. And like, I can, I can be the kind of person that you can talk to about those things, even if it might not be a good fit based on our strategy. Right. Because yeah. I think at the end of the day, this is like, it's almost like dating. Um, but I started my career as an operator. That was also by accident. I graduated in 07. And so by the time 08 hit, it was like global financial crisis. And so coming out of the University of Minnesota with a finance degree and moving to New York with absolutely no network was like truly probably one of the most daunting experiences of my life. The only reason why I moved to New York was because it was the only city in the U.S. that I felt like had the diversity and the like life that I was accustomed to having grown up in, you know, the Middle East and also having gone to boarding school in Southeast Asia. So like 
if I was going to pick a city, it was going to be London, New York, or Singapore, all yeah. hubs for mm-hmm. finance, all places that were falling apart in like that, you know, 07, 08 timeframe. And so I had really no option but to figure out a different path. And that different path was starting in retail operations at Victoria's Secret and like overseeing um, a bunch of stores through limited brands. And then it was, you know, getting my MBA while I was doing all of that. And it was working at a lobbying firm for a hot second and then realizing I didn't want to be lobbying on behalf of cigarette companies and Mm -hmm. energy companies. Um, And I wasn't a lawyer, but I was there and I was enabling these things to be happening and to be at front and center of that in Albany, where a lot of this legislation um, is getting passed. It's like, it's, it's almost like terrifying because you see like how the sausage is made and there's a part mm-hmm. of you that doesn't want to see it um, mm-hmm. because you can mm-hmm. see how laws actually get passed. Um, uh, but it was like a, it's a happenstance slash preparedness thing. This is something that I tell people all the time. Like I take the collection of my experiences. I make sure every person I meet is a person that I maintain some kind of relationship with because every person on that, your journey is significant. And then like, it's just about that openness to what could I do next? And that's what happened. I joined primary on the heels of working with a CFO that ultimately we didn't necessarily need for the startup that I was at, but maintaining a good relationship with her that made it so that she introduced me to my former partners, just as they were in the process of closing their first fund with the crazy idea of like, we're only going to be investing in New York and we want to be the most hands-on helpful investor, really add value. And they gave me so much breathing room to define that and like not be the person that's just organizing events or like sending an email here and there and pretending like, okay, that's enough value. Um, But it was like really diving in deep with founders. And I'm not sure that I would be the kind of investor I am today without that freedom to operate early on that they gave me. Mm. And so I'm here by accident, to be honest. And half the time, you know, along the way, I'm like, do I even want to be here? Just go back and become a people officer again. That work is like work I know how to do inside out versus like this Mm. job. You kind of just like, I figure things out as I go. And as a person that's like quite type A, figuring things out as you go is like literally not a thing that you ever, but it's just like, it's a very hard place to put yourself all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And even as I've been in venture now for the better part of eight, almost nine years, I still feel like I have so much mm-hmm. to learn. Wow. Especially now that I'm building a fund from the ground up with a new partnership, there's just so many things to consider that you don't think about when um, when you're going into it, right? It's all aspirational. I wanted to loop back on something that you said earlier about when when you were talking about your real moment and always second guessing yourself because it sure sounds to me like you have just like grabbed life and gone for it and continued to do so. And you talk about this preparedness and awareness of like accepting these challenges that life throws at you and and just going for it and figuring it out as you go along, which I want to spend some time on because I think that is such an important part of life for women who are truly carving their own path and not following like a ladder or steps or a plan, but like getting ready. And then when that moment comes, like being ready to jump on it. And so I wonder how do you do that, but also deal with the voice that might be on your shoulder. I know it's on my shoulder. That's like, (laughs) Oh, you're not good enough. Oh, you should really do that. Like, how do you deal with that voice? Um, I asked, I asked a a very uh, credible female founder, um, whether or not she gets imposter syndrome and, And her answer was like really emphatically like, no, I belong here. And I was like, I wish I had that certainty. I was like, I've, I've actually, I've never experienced a person who answered that question with like a, uh, that's not me. Uh, Right. uh. Usually it's like, well, here's how I cope with it. Here's how I deal with it and all. And so Mm -hmm. I, I often look back on that conversation and like, that's part of it is like, you have to surround yourself with people who are like, I really, can I swear? <laughs> but 
I really oh, fucking yes. belong here. Like there is no it's really shit, Gabriel, as the show. Like that. <laughs> I, know. I know. I'm like, oh my god, can I do this? Um, clearly I have kids at home. Um, I think first and foremost, you have to inherently believe it. Maybe it's only 80% of the way there, but you do have to believe in yourself to a certain extent, right? Because I think this is an impossible task if you're at 10%. Because at 10%, you're not really that self-aware. At 10%, you're not really preparing yourself. At 10%, you're probably doing a lot of things wrong. And, and one would argue you need to like bring that percentage up before you can get to a place where you're like, I'm here, I'm ready to accept this, right? And you don't always have that luxury because plenty of things will kind of kind of over go past you if you're not in that place. So I, I think that's one component. The other component is you've got to have role models or mentors or, you know, just people that you respect, that you aspire to be, that are um, kind of close enough within reach that you can actually get real advice and honest like perspective from them because to your point, I have always seemed like I've had it together, strong, like very focused. This is what I want to do. This is how I'm going to be. The reality is that like, that's not true. Um, and so I am definitive in the kind of impact that I want to make on the world, but the path in getting there, I have no, I mean, I don't have the 12 step plan to get there. So I, I think I realized really early in my career that keeping a smaller group of people that I truly respect and trust versus having a big group of people around me was far more valuable. And so who do I put in that circle? There are other women in venture. There are people that are not just my friends and my parents who think that, you know, I'm amazing. Um, there are people who challenge you and tell you like, I don't think that's right. Um, and can have like that real dialogue. And, you know, for me now, it's also partly my husband who like, we can have these, you're not arguments, but lively discussions about things happening in our industry and why things need to change and like how he can be a real part of that. And so that's, that's what I would say is like, it, it's not a fake persona because I definitely am like strong and like decisive and I am all of those things. But I guess like, I don't want to be dishonest and, and like disingenuous here. Like half of the time I'm like, did I do the, did I say something wrong? Is that like, and it's that like nobody ever is as prepared or as strong or as like um, put together as you see them um, mm. as personas. And I've experienced this before. Plenty of people I've met have said, I'm so excited to meet you. You've done so much in this world. You're such a great example. And it actually is like a really daunting thing for people <laughs> to see me as that because it means that I have to be very conscious of every decision and every step I make from here because I am mm. ahead of a lot of people who want to be in this same position in the future. Mm. Um, but the problem with that mentality is if you're constantly kind of watching your back, yeah. then you, then you act really differently, right? Mm. Then you're maybe more reserved than you want to be. And so I try to, I go to therapy. I, I try to have people I can bounce that off of because setting an example, like in and of itself is not like a single, it's not like, just me. There's so many things that go into me showing up the way that I am. So good. You you sort of keyed in on something twice that I think is like the thing I wish someone had told me, especially when I was about to embark on the founder journey, which is like your relationships with people. And you said that any person that came in your path, like you you found a way to keep in touch. And I'm sure it's not like every, every person, but like just keeping those threads and I think it is like a superpower. Like I have anxiety about speaking on panels because I am so bad at like keeping up with the people. And so I now have anxiety about it because I get nervous that I'm going to meet a bunch of people who are like very inspired about this moment on a panel or something like that. And then I'm going to absolutely suck at like keeping up with them. And in many ways, like when I'm honest about my career, I actually think it's like the thing I have done the worst at 
is like that like relationship management piece. And I think like it is the most important thing in your professional and in some ways your personal life. And I'm like a whole life person. So I, I feel like I just have one life and I don't really do a lot of separation, but I just want to like see if there are some things that you do to like help you with that, especially as like your ecosystem at this point of your life is like super expansive. It, I think it is just inherently my nature to want to mm. connect with people, to remember certain things about people. And it's probably why I end up, ended up as a recruiter just, you know, at the beginning mm. of my career. Right. Mm. Because so much of it was just like, how do I get to this place where I'm basically taking a company's biggest like goals and matching that with people who want certain jobs to help them accomplish set goals. So there's, there's no air table. I'm not like keeping track of this anywhere. I have no like hacky system for this. And it, it is more just like, it is inherently my natural state to want to connect with others, to do it in a way that like feels authentic. So it isn't just like a transactional relationship. And part of it is you have to believe that like every coffee you have is probably not going to produce like the best it's not going to produce like the deepest relationship every time, but in that 30 or 45 minutes that I'm spending with you, how can I make you feel like a human being? How can yeah. I make you feel more important than your job title or where you happen to work? And so much of my job when I was at primary was making sure we were so deeply connected across the ecosystem because we decided that it was the only geography that we were going to be investing in. And mm -hmm. part of that job as an investor is to not be the smartest person in the room, but it's to have access to the smartest people in the room who are willing to spend time with your companies when they are struggling with very specific issues. And that's how I, that's kind of how I approached everything. And what's funny is this morning, I did a founder call with somebody who I knew who was a very high up executive at a very successful New York based startup. He's now in Amsterdam building a new company. And he reached out to me while I was on leave. So it was sitting in my inbox forever. And he, and today when we got on a call, I said, you know, tell me what's, what's up? Like, what are you doing now? And he's like, I'm building companies. And I remember from years ago meeting you, you were one of the only VCs that I really felt like gave a shit about me as a human being asked about my wife, like, you know, and the work that she does. And like, you know, you felt like a really good sounding board and you had nothing really to gain from the situation other than like, you know, hanging out. Right. And he's somebody who I was able to leverage for plenty of like great operational advice. But I don't know that I went into it like thinking that that would yeah. be the case. But for him to say that and reflect on that, that was four or five years ago. When I was sitting with him somewhere in Midtown at a coffee shop, probably a, um, a Le Pen and like just hearing about who he was and not, be, not like what he did for a living. So maybe it's that, maybe it's just like you treat every interaction for what it is, which is like you connecting with another person and not you connecting with like the COO at Y company and like, what should I be getting out yeah. of this? Um, yeah. the thing I will say though, is that I am actually not an extrovert. I don't get joy and energy from like constantly being out in the world and networking. And so it actually goes counter to my, I'm a necessary extrovert is what I call myself. Like <laughs> if I have to be on, happy to be on, shake a hand, speak on a panel, like have 10,000 coffees. But at the end of that day, I'm tired. Mm -hmm. When I realized that about myself, I had to like make sure that I could do it in a way that I was still showing up authentically for people, but yeah. also not in a place where I was so substantially draining myself that like I couldn't be a good version of myself in those conversations. Mm. Right. And so I started to restrict yeah. the amount of interactions I would have, not because I didn't want to have them, but because they just I needed it. Um, there are plenty of people in this world and Sheree, you, I think you are one of them who so much joy and energy comes from constantly being around others. My husband is that way. And it's definitely a friction point for us because I'm like, I'm tired. 
I want to go home. Um, and he's like, yes, everybody's our friend and everyone should come over. And, and, and that's why you two get along so well. Um, but, but it is, you know, the best example I gave is like when, when we moved into our apartment, which is a block away from our office on, on literally the day that we moved, he invited people over, but I'm, I'm literally standing in the sea of boxes, which by the way, I am organizing. I am the one unpacking. Right. Of course. And he's of like, course. I'm going to order a cheese plate because X and Y are coming over. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> but I've learned, honestly, it's one of the most amazing things about him. And he pushes me into this place where I am like, you know, slightly uncomfortable sometimes, but there's like, it's, there's a wonderful balance in it. And like, mm -hmm. we found our way to a place where, I think it's not draining for either of us. And we found a way like to have that happy medium. Part of that is living in very close proximity to where we work so that it never kind of feels cumbersome to be around others. And we make it easy mm. for people to be around us. But yeah, I, it's funny, people talk about networking all the time. And like, mm -hmm. I think part of it is people talk about networking as like a chore. Yeah, it's like, mm -hmm. they do. You know, yeah. it's like a transactional business activity. And if you mm -hmm. define it as mm -hmm. that, I don't think you get anything out of it. I mean, you Absolutely might have not. a Rolodex Absolutely and maybe not. a thousand more LinkedIn connections, but none of those people are going to answer your email They're not. or like answer your call, like when you're calling for something. And that's actually what matters. That's what actually matters. And that's also like what senior women like us need is like when we need help we need it now and we're busy and like we have we have we need to have people to reach out to that are gonna like jump on it and like be there to help us yeah i want to ask you one more question kat but before i do i also want to tell you sheree as your best friend like i'm not going to fully accept what you said because you literally are on a panel right now and you're crushing it <laughs> and also you are like one of the best people i know at pulling people together and building community so you're not doing as bad as you think you are there. I'm just, I'm not going to let you get away with that statement. <laughs> I don't want to like deny your feeling. Cause like I we don't do that on this last show, week but at the same we... event that I was at and you, and you spoke for far longer than I did. And it was truly, I said to, I was like, what are you doing? You're my podcast co-host and you're saying you're afraid of speaking on panels. Okay. We need no, to the panel speaking is fine. It's the after part of the, like, I got to email the people that email me back. That, that part the speaking is fine it's the like <laughs> my friend lovey she's a writer and like she once told me when she was very pissed off at me she said <laughs> you know what your problem is you're not afraid of failure you're afraid of the responsibility of success and that ah. was the realest thing i ever heard because i mm. generally am not afraid of failing but to your point and you spoke about this cat yeah like when you're successful you cannot move the same way. No. That is such an interesting I'm, perspective. I'm leaving that behind, though. I'm leaving that behind. That is, like, my pivotal my life moment of, like, the past six months mm. is actually leaving that behind. Because what comes with that is, like, self-sabotage. Yeah. Yes. And so this idea that, like, some of us aren't afraid of failure. We're actually afraid of success. And so we do things so we don't get there. Yep. I'm afraid of failure. So I'm the opposite of you. I am afraid of <laughs> failure. You have to remember that I came from an Asian family. And so like A that minus, makes sense. That makes sense. A that minus makes sense. is a failure. So like I'm gonna one up you both because I think I'm afraid of both of those oh, things. No. I have struggled with both on either side. <laughs> you know, and I would never think that of you. Never think that of you. Um the last time I saw you in person was in a coffee shop in the East Village. Somewhere. So I wanted to bring that up because as you were talking about what this founder shared with you, Kat, it made me think of that time. And I remember at that time for whatever reason, I think you were, you were in the middle of like transitioning from primary to starting your own fund. And so you're like, this is not a good time for me to invest. But I remember how human 
you made me feel in that moment and how you like really connected with me over things like music. And you gave me some cool recommendations about like funds to check out. And we talked about culture. We talked about Jay-Z. I walked away thinking like, this investor is so different than any investor I've ever met before, because that's not something you normally end up talking about in like an investor coffee. Usually they're just like looking at you with dollar signs in their eyes, like, okay, how much can this thing possibly net me in like X years, you know? And they're just sort of stripping it down to that. And it just feels so transactional. And there was nothing about that conversation that felt transactional at all. And then if I remember correctly, you reached out like maybe like, I don't know, like a year later because you had a question about video and like shooting stuff in black for this, um, in a black background for this, this startup yes, that you were working that was with. For Mirror. And, yeah, for Mirror. Exactly. And I was, yes. I remember when that email came in, it was such a bad week for me. Like it was, it was one of those weeks where just like everything was going to hell, like personally and professionally. And I was so busy and I so did not have time to answer you, but I thought, you know, there was just something about that interaction that we had at that coffee shop that made me feel like I should, I should follow up. And I think I gave you some tips and made a few recommendations and tried to get back to you and help the best I could. And, and, and like, and I think that's what it's all about is like, we're all really busy. Like there's always a reason why we shouldn't answer an email always. But like the fact that I did leads to us being here now having this conversation and you sharing these nuggets of wisdom with us and our listeners. And like, it never would have transpired if you hadn't had just seen me as a person in that coffee shop in New York. And so here's my question for you, which is you do early stage venture. That is like very similar almost to like, being an A&R rep, it's all about the person, right? It's like, is this artist going to make it? You know, are they going to be the next Lady Gaga? Are they going to be the next Crazy. Beyonce? And what is your method of doing that? Like, it's such a special, magical power that like very few investors seem to have. It's like you and Charles Hudson and like a handful of others. And like, how do you do it? Like, what do you see in people that makes you go, yes, they are going to be major? So... You have to remember that even even if I am really good at assessing people, I'm still like 90% wrong about companies, right? Because there's so many other things on top of people mm -hmm. that make something really successful. So, um, and so I think part of it is like, I'm humbled by that. It's like, I could believe in you, the individual, as much as I can, but so many things need to happen around you and with you and for you in order for it to be the multi-billion dollar outcome that we're all aspiring you to get to, right? So, yeah. um, and so in an industry or in a job where you are wrong 90% of the time, I think it's kind of like, okay, cool. I can't, I mean, I can be somewhat arrogant that I'm like hot shit and really good at assessing human beings. But then there's the other side of me that's like, okay, like I'm going to be wrong. If I'm going to be wrong, who do I want to work with and who do I want to believe in for this next like 10 years? Who do I want to spend time with? By the way, that's a tough thing for founders because it means there is truly like a personal dynamic that goes into whether or not I want to be invested in your company. And if there are fewer people that look like me or fewer people that feel like that you feel like you connect with, then like the odds are against you in terms of getting access to the capital that you want and need. And for me personally, it's one, my denominator of like human beings that I've hired and fired and interviewed is very high, right? I used to build teams mm -hmm. for a living. So I have seen every boilerplate answer. I have seen, you know, many people go through the motion of seed to series B companies and not been able to rise into those roles because the companies were growing really fast or maybe the companies weren't mm -hmm. doing so well. And then they weren't as uh, nimble as they needed to be. I've just, I've, I've been in the front seat of that. I've been in the front seat of having to make a lot of tough calls because I chose to work in environments that were really kind of binary to a certain extent, right? You're either going to mm. like really make it or you're really not. Because of that, the experience set is like, I think it's different than most. Um, like I've interacted with a lot of human beings as a function of my job, but also like the other side of it is like, I have a lot of empathy 
for what it means to build a company from the ground up. And so when I meet a person who I think has the most amazing vision, but I have questions around whether or not they might be the right CEO for the company long term, I have to think about where are those biases coming from? Is it something inherently in me or is it truly something about this person? And can I get over that? Right. Um, I guess like the answer to your question is really like, I try to take a very holistic view of every person that I meet. Mm -hmm. And I try to make sure that I'm not applying too much of my own bias when I'm making decisions about people and whether or not they are backable. They might just not be a good fit for me and for my firm and our strategy. And that's perfectly okay, but you can still be human throughout that process. And in the founders that I've worked with in the past, the openness to feedback and the quickness in which you are making decisions with imperfect data points is probably the single most important thing because in this stage of investing there are no guarantees there's no like let's wait and see for two years and like get all the data that we want there's like you have two weeks you have very few customers you've got plenty of junior team members and like you've got to make choices And so do I trust you to be the kind of person that makes those types of choices? And you can really only know that if you've known people over a long horizon. And so my preference is always to get to know people before they become founders, before they self-identify as like, this is my business and I am the CEO, because then I can make a much more informed decision over a long horizon. It's a much harder Mm. call for me to make when I'm meeting you for the first time and you have a term sheet on the table and I have about a week to decide. So I know we're going to talk about our record scratch, um, but I do have one more question about like this moment in venture. And it largely has to do with like what I know you invest in, but also what I know the moment is in venture capital right now. And I'm specifically speaking about AI and this moment where companies who are not AI companies are struggling to raise capital. And while I'm team AI and we should be building with AI and being more efficient with AI and all of the things, I think every company should be fusing AI in some component of their business, even if it's just like being better at customer service if you're a consumer company. But it does seem like companies that are operating in some of the spaces that I know are important to you are really struggling to find investors that will back them. Um, And I'm just curious on your take on that, especially as a seed stage investor, as you're thinking about your companies graduating to Series A. Yeah, it's honestly, it's really tough out there. Even if you have quote unquote product market fit or some level of traction, And just everybody's a little bit skittish and afraid to deploy into the wrong things. But history has shown us that the ones that do take risk in this climate, they benefit greatly. Mm. The people who are making investments post, um, you know, the global financial crisis saw some of the best outcomes. And so, like, that's kind of the mindset that we've chosen to take is. Like we believe that despite it being difficult, there are certain industries that will always be resilient no matter what. Healthcare being one of those industries. Now, what solutions within healthcare will get funded like or not get funded? Like I do think that there is a risk that some great companies will cease to exist because they'll just simply run out of money. But that's also why like you have to be very diligent about the things that you can control as a founder, which is managing what you spend on, going back to bare bones if that's the right decision. And mm-hmm. making the tough call that like when you raise your five million dollar like round at the 20 something posts, like you thought you would never have to do again. Um, sometimes operating with that scarcity is, mm. I, I guess it's almost better, right? Um, mm-hmm. Because your money will go further as you succeed versus like only give you such a confined like period of time to, to operate. And mm. there are a lot of things across healthcare still and across like financial services that are getting funded, but there are certain things that won't in this climate. Lending businesses are extremely tough. Um, certain things around like life sciences may be extremely tough depending on yeah. how far they are away from commercialization or from like being post clinical trials. So the, the goal is like, how do I educate myself enough so that I know 
what things actually have or put, have the potential to see the light of day and truly be something that like the world needs to have in the next 10 years. And then for some of the other like good ideas that may not be able to survive, then there's the question around consolidation. Can they live elsewhere? Can those products mm-hmm. be part of other organizations? And so you just have to be creative about it. The AI thing is an interesting thing to me. I think I might have said this last week on my panel. It's like everybody is an AI investor now and every company is an AI company. And that's just not true. Um, and so how do you as an investor kind of delineate from what's real and what's not real, especially if you're not technical and you're not an expert? I think that's the hardest part, right? Yeah. Um, and I have a self-awareness oh, around agree. that, right? Yeah. I know that I'm not an expert there. And so I surround myself with people who are far smarter than me, more technical, who can say like, this is actually just machine learning, simple machine learning. It is not real, like artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. And like for us as an extension at TVC, we care about the impact of AI. So I care a lot about the responsibility behind it. What does it mean yeah. for us to actually, if you do find a viable solution of what, whatever kind, what does that mean for the everyday person? What does that yeah. mean for mm-hmm. human advancement? Um, and is that good? And like, it's hard to it's hard to answer some of those things, but there are things that are a little bit more black and white and you're like, I don't want to work on that. Or like, that's not something that I would find. And I just don't think that there's enough conversation around um, AI from the point of view of responsibility and like regulatory framework that needs to happen because it can't be like a free for all crypto web three environment like we experienced um yeah. over the last few years right i yeah. do think that that's like 100%. a critical component of it so i'm yeah. really glad to hear you say that because like i really like felt that through my body when you were talking about it because that was one of my biggest personal struggles when i was pitching is like we were actually building real artificial intelligence like it was so it was so far in the future that like I would say our biggest problem was that we were too ahead of the market. Like if I had been building the company I was building then now, it would have been a very different story. Um, But it's like, there were so many other founders running around. They were like, oh yeah, I'm using AI. And I'm like, you're not. It's machine learning or it's signal processing, or you just like fine tuned someone else's shit. Like I just, and no one would take us seriously or not no one, but a lot of people would not take us seriously because we were women. Like the number of times I had an investor say to me, can you please get your tech guy in here for this meeting? And I'm like, well, that's going to be interesting because my tech guy is actually a tech girl. It's it's really hard to, to judge, especially because it is really complex. And so I'm very glad to hear that you're surrounding yourself by experts. And I hope that if nothing else, this AI craze at the moment gives us all a sense of what it really feels like. Because I think that humans are extremely adaptable and we learn really fast when something feels like a certain thing or not. The same way that we learn to feel, oh, this is a native mobile app versus a website. We know the feeling. We know the difference. We know the loading speeds. We know the UI. We just we just know. You know, I don't need to ask you whether it was coded in Swift or not. I just know, you know? And I think that we're going to develop that same like sixth sense for AI really, really rapidly, like in the next few months. And this won't be as much of an issue, but um, it certainly is right now. It's tough. It's like when every every company was a Web3 company. Yeah, right? exactly. For like a hot second, <laughs> like the metaverse was like suddenly where everybody wanted to be. And I was like, mm-hmm. there's so many problems in the real world. I'm mm-hmm. not going into the metaverse. Same. Like, like, 100%. I, I don't I understand. I was like, never going. I'm like, <laughs> do I want like a you know, VR goggles and do I want to be interacting with? No, like it is, it was so, it's so crazy to me. And like, it was funny. We, we, you know, when you talk to founders and like, you can tell when they slap it on the deck and like clearly doesn't belong in the story. I'm like, no, no. And it's tough because for the founders that are truly building something of substance in those categories, Mm -hmm. whether it be web three or like, um, or AI, it's so hard to then filter through the noise if you're not exclusively focused on those industries, because I think we as investors, I mean, certainly I can speak for myself, like 
I tend to be a bit more of a generalist. I have areas of interest and I have areas where I'm like extremely passionate and invest a lot, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I understand the ins and outs of payers and like that, like I've truly seen like how the blues work, like, because I've never been in there. I've always been kind of around it and I know enough to be dangerous to give good advice to companies and to mm-hmm. make appropriate connections. But like, I'm really self-aware about like, I'm certainly not going to call myself exclusively as a healthcare investor because it's not true. And, and maybe that's just me as a woman being like a man makes one healthcare investment and he's like, I'm a healthcare <laughs> investor. Um, so maybe, maybe I'm uh, cutting off my own foot here, but like, I, I feel the need to be like really thoughtful about these things because I think it's important to be investing in people who know more than you. Um, to a large mm-hmm. extent, right? I shouldn't mm-hmm. be smarter than you at the business that you're looking to build. And that certainly if I haven't looked at like thousands of companies, should I be opining on whether or not your go-to-market is going to work or whether or not you have a real AI business? Like there yeah. are th- certain things that are that really look fake. So I think you can take those things out really easily. Yeah. But then there's everything else that like you either want to be real or think could be real. And so the question is, how do you start, how do you validate that feedback loop as quickly as humanly possible? Yeah. 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 Speaking of healthcare, um, to, to, to flip over to our record scratch moment, you were, you were sharing a little bit of a WTF moment before we got on record. And I'd love to pick that back up if you're willing to share quickly. Oh, I'm happy to. Um, so it's my third day back as, um, as I shared with you both before we started this third day back from maternity leave. And it's overwhelming to say the least. Um, I, you know, have a great firm. We have 12 weeks of leave. I have amazing partners and team members. Um, and I'm, I'm back because I want to be back to be clear. But what I will say as a person that does invest in healthcare, the experience of being pregnant and then delivering in a very kind of traumatic, um, you, you know, way, like really opened my eyes to the fact that like there is still so much that is wrong mm-hmm. in our healthcare system. And as a person who lives in New York City, who has access to great doctors and great health insurance, I still felt like especially um, during my experience of labor, I still really felt like, what the fuck is happening to me? Mm. And the statistics I think that people share very often is like the U.S. as a country has one of the highest infant mortality rates um, for a developed um, economy. And I think part of that is like there's inherently a lot of things wrong with the infrastructure that supports our Mm -hmm. healthcare system and with all of the components that make it um, possible for people to access high quality and affordable healthcare. I don't know that I necessarily believe that like universal healthcare solves everything, but like it's very clear that even in my experience, there's still so much to be fixed. And so the question is like, how do you do that in a system that is so slow and so ingrained in our society? And um, the other thing I'll say is like, as a mom, it's amazing. Everybody celebrates the like, you just gave birth and there's this amazing like new human being that you've created, but no one talks about, and I've actually openly um, talked about this on LinkedIn. No one talks about the like tough delivery. The fact that I, you know, had a life and death experience. The fact that, you know, she came four and a half weeks early and I wasn't prepared for that. And like needed many hours of therapy to get to a place where I really felt like I could show up for my family and my daughter in the way that they deserve. But no one Mm. talks about that. They only Mm. talk about the like, yay, you have a child. And there's so many things that go into that, that like, I mean, I applaud every single person that's that's ever been in my life that had a kid before me because I truly never fully understood it until I got to Mm. this place of Mm. how hard it is to navigate our healthcare system first and foremost, but then how hard it is to be a working mom and Mm. one that wants to be an example for others. One that wants to drive step change shift in the world. Like you don't, it's so hard to do all of those things well. And like most of the time you feel like you're not, and I Mm. feel inadequate Mm. many, many hours Mm. of the day, Mm. but Mm. I, 
I don't know. It's, it's, it's really opened my eyes to why women's health is not niche. <laughs> Can we just like remove that from the narrative period? It's 50% uh, of the population. It's not niche. It's funny. But and like, also you are being very generous to call it a healthcare system. <laughs> no, it's true. It's just when I was at Mount Sinai West and they did an amazing job. Um, I was there for a day and a half before they did an emergency C-section and I was signing forms left and right, delirious out of my mind. And I had my husband there who didn't like know what was happening either. And like, I think about like so many things could have gone wrong and they did the best that they could. But that experience of being in a fantastic hospital with fantastic doctors, like what if it was not a fantastic hospital with Mm -hmm. not fantastic doctors who didn't go to Ivy League schools or, you know, practice medicine in one of the busiest hospitals in like the world, probably like how do how do you end up in a place where you could even have better outcomes? And like, by the way, even if you were there. How do you ensure that that mom and that child don't become a burden on the healthcare system in the long run? You do that by having like a truly value-based care healthcare system. And we're so far away from that. Um, For the billions or trillions of dollars that go into healthcare, it is unbelievable to me that we are still in this place where it is hard for me to think about how do I afford specialty medication? So I don't know, it has made me a more empathetic like human in a lot of ways, but it's also made me so laser focused on thinking about like, where are the very clear areas of opportunity here? How do we find that as fast as humanly possible so that the next generation is not struggling to access affordable healthcare and high quality healthcare in the way that like so many communities are today. And like, it just is baseline. And it should be baseline and it's not. And it's truly like, it makes me so angry uh, to, to like really think about it, but I'm happy to be back and um, definitely in a place where I'm super overwhelmed, but like, I'll figure it out. I have a great like support system around me um, and it'll all be okay. I will check in on me on like day 25 of being back and I'll probably Heard. be less I'll be less stressed out. Um, maybe we can re-record this podcast, but. Um, <laughs> oh, no way. This was fantastic. No, we will not be re-recording. I hope that the community gets something good out of this. And if nothing else, like you, you realize that you're not alone in the feelings that you have. And even the most successful of us, quote unquote, like. We don't all, we don't have it together. Not as much as you think that we do. And I never really think of myself as like successful. I think of myself as I want to be a good example. And if that good example is equated with success, fantastic. Um, But like I went into this, I mean, of course, to make money, you don't become a venture capitalist to not make money. But I think my biggest vision for this is like, if I am successful at the work that I do, then I will be able to direct capital in so many ways in the way that they should be into the hands of the people that deserve to have them. And like, that's going to be as eventually becoming my own limited partner with the flexibility to like do whatever I want with that. But first it's going to be as a general partner that puts it in the hands of founders that then create amazing companies that I can't take credit for. But, um, but I think that's like, that's what drives me is like, that's, that's what I want. I mean, yes, I want to do this for a long time for, for as long as I have the privilege of doing so, but it truly is about like, how do I go beyond like one step up? Right. I know I know where that step up needs to be. And that just means that I need to be really good at this so that I can get there. And hopefully that means I can continue to bring other people around me. And my partnership is majority female. My team is majority underrepresented. Like we want to be a reflection of the communities that we want to serve. And that's a very conscious decision on on my part. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kat. It was truly a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you both for having me. That was one hell of a record scratch. I mean, we almost got like two real moments on this episode. Yes. It got real, then it got really real again. And then shit got even more real. 
Yeah. I mean, I'm a mom and I definitely like empathize with that moment with Kat. Like I also had an emergency C-section. So it was just mm-hmm. like, whoo. I mean, I cried in the beginning. So there we are. I kept it in for the second one. <laughs> I could tell. I could tell you were like, get back in there with the tears. <laughs> literally, literally. But it was, I'm hoping all of you just like felt that in the way that I know I certainly did. Um, Kat, it was, Kat's just incredible. And I'm just excited to see like where she goes um, as an investor and as a future LP and all of the things like she wants to do in this like world of being an example. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kat, for sharing those very, very real and very vulnerable moments. Like uh, I have not had that experience, but I have been in like a near death situation in a hospital. And for anyone listening who has, you know how like it is so real when your life is in the hands of the professionals around you and the system mm-hmm. that you are in. And mm-hmm. it is a well moment for sure. So with that said, next week, you should come back for even more realness because we always have something juicy going on for you here on this show. If you get something out of this show, if you find this useful, if you think of sending it to someone, do that and please rate and review this podcast because it makes such a difference to sure. the algorithm. And, you know, <laughs> that is how it works. Um, so it's not for us. It's for the algorithm. It's for the community. It's about giving back. That's why we do this show. We do it for free because we love it and we love you listening and follow us on got real pod on all the socials and give us a shout out tell us what you want to talk about what you want to hear about who you think we should have on the show we would love to hear from you Bye.